0: This is Bill Buford. I'm the author of Dirt. I have spent a wonderful, intense, intelligent afternoon with Trey talking about my book for Books on Pod.
1: Hello, readers. Gary Taubes is an award-winning science and health journalist, co-founder of the Nutrition Science Initiative, and the best-selling author of The Case Against Sugar, Why We Get Fat, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and his newest book, The Case for Keto. Rethinking Weight Control and the Science and Practice of Low-Carb, High-Fat Eating. Gary, thank you for the time today. How you doing? I'm good. So, for the sake of context, what is the keto diet, a.k.a. the low-carb, high-fat diet?
0: Okay, well, the simplest way to think of it is that carbohydrates are fattening. And so those of us who tend to put on weight easily or are losing control of our blood sugar, have to avoid carbohydrate-rich foods. And when you abstain from them effectively entirely, uh, then you're doing a ketogenic diet.
1: And you state very plainly early on in this book that some of the people that you just listed, essentially people who have a propensity to obesity are those that this book is directed at more than anybody else. Why is that?
0: Well, if you're lean and healthy and you're eating the way, well, whatever you're eating and you're lean and healthy, then it's working for you, right? Your body can tolerate the foods you're eating. If you're eating a standard American diet with a lot of processed food-like substances and a lot of sugary beverages, and if you're drinking a lot of beer, you're probably aware that you're not eating the healthiest way you can, but if you're lean, what the heck? So I'm interested in those people, like you said, who are getting fatter or are suffer obesity already and they've been trying to eat right they've been trying to eat healthy as they understand it they've been trying to keep their calories under control and you know exercise regularly and it's not working and that's probably a significant portion of the adults in america you know somewhere between 30 and 70 percent the young kids the people who are like i said lean and healthy now they're either going to stay that way or they're going to turn 30 or 35 and find suddenly that it's a lot harder than they thought to stay lean and healthy, and then they're going to want to know what to do, and so I'm willing to get them 10 or 15 years from now.
1: For a long time, obesity has been thought of as a result of overeating, but on June 22, 1962, a Tufts Medical School professor tried to change that narrative. What did Edwin Astwood present about obesity that day, and how was it received by his peers?
0: Okay, so this is, you know, the conventional thinking on obesity. Even people are listening to you now are going to think, well, Jesus, you know, people get fat because they eat too much. Whenever you see an article in the newspapers about this, about the approaches to reversing or treating obesity, there's always some comments from idiots talking about how those, you know, fat people just can't control their appetites, and they have to learn that, and that everything else is an excuse. So from 1930 to 19 onward, in the United States, this idea was that obesity is caused by eating too much, and this fellow Edwin Aswood, who I use in the book to convey the counter-argument, Aswood was the leading specialist in the United States on hormone, leading research on hormones and hormone-related diseases. So this is the science of endocrinology. He was at Tufts University. He was a Lasker Award winner. And he gave a talk called The Heritage of Corpulence in which he said, look, clearly obesity is a genetic condition. And we pass it on to our children. You'd be crazy to think otherwise. You know, just like height is determined by genes and eye color is determined by genes and hair color and foot size, so is body shape. And the genes that would control it wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with how much people eat and exercise, but would be all about, you know, the genes that control fat storage and how we use fat for fuel and you know in our bodies and the, the metabolism of fat. And we circulate fat around our body all the time, we put it into storage, we take it out of storage. And he said, by the 1960s, we understood a lot of this hormonal regulation of fat storage and metabolism, and that's what we should be targeting when we're studying obesity. And the problem is, by that time, obesity in the U.S. research was dominated by psychologists and psychiatrists who were trying to figure out how to get fat people to eat less, And they didn't read the endocrinology journals. They didn't care about endocrinology. And the endocrinologists themselves, for the most part, back then, rarely even saw an obese patient because there weren't that many obese people in 1961, 62. And so they didn't care. So it was like he was just shouting into the wind. And then you would find in doing my research as a journalist, Time and time again, some of the really smartest people in the field, the the, the premier researcher in premier pediatric obesity researcher, a woman named Hilda Brooke, who went on, I think, to get a PhD in psychiatry from the University of Texas, if I remember correctly, she argued that obesity had to be a hormonal regulatory problem. So disorder of fat storage, not this overeating, gluttony and sloth thing. And no one paid attention, except occasionally the diet book doctors.
1: In arguing the case for keto, you do take exception with the most popular method to try and treat obesity, and that is a caloric deficit, feeding that individual a caloric deficit. What is the fundamental flaw, in your opinion, with the caloric deficit theory?
0: Well, we know what happens when you feed lean people a caloric deficit, right? They get hungry, (laughs) and they stay hungry, okay? That's what happens to lean people. So why would you expect anything different to happen to obese people? you think about it, imagine that, okay, I'm, I'm flying into Austin for dinner tonight, i got a lot of friends in Austin, so we're going to have a feast. COVID doesn't exist at the moment. <laughs> I invite you to come, and it's just barbecue, and it's the best barbecue you will ever have in your life. We're going to have like 10 cookers going, and there's going to be ribs and brisket and short ribs and pulled pork and corn and potatoes and coleslaw, and then we're going to have desserts. And the invitation says, bring your appetite come hungry, what would you do today to make sure that by the time you got to this feast tonight, you're hungry and can eat as much food as humanly possible? Not eat anything? And, yeah, eat less and exercise, right? Mm-hmm. You might even say, geez, the feast is only five miles from where I live. If I leave an hour and a half early, I can walk there and build up an appetite. <laughs> there used to be this concept called building up an appetite. And the way you did that was you exercise. Now the idea is we're supposed to exercise to lose weight because we're supposed to be able to ignore the hunger, ignore the caloric deficit, and then expect our body to just remove the calories necessary from our fat and not want to replace them. It's physiologically inane. But this has been the conventional thinking, like I said, since 1930 in effect.
1: What did you mean when you summarized what Astwood was driving at by writing hunger is a response, not a cause?
0: Well, if you think about growing children, for instance, when kids are growing, they'll eat voraciously. Like kids, when they go through adolescence and puberty, you know, the idea is eating me out of house and home. It's a phrase parents are always muttering to themselves. So the idea is that it's the growth that causes the hunger not how much you eat determining how much you'll grow. And this is the case, and you know, if you think about sort of naively, like an elephant eats you know, tons of food a day because it's an enormous animal. It doesn't become an enormous animal because it eats tons of food a day. So in every other biological system, the growth drives hunger. Hunger is an effect, not a cause. And only in obesity, because we have these preconceptions about why people get fat, they eat too much, right? So now suddenly hunger became the cause. And Aswood was talk- trying to talk his colleagues out of it. Like I said, nobody was paying attention. And if you look at how the research proceeded after that, when researchers discover h- obesity genes and things like that, they immediately think that what they're discovering is a gene that regulates appetite. So instead of thinking, aha, I've discovered a gene that might regulate fat accumulation, just like you might discover a gene that plays a role in height, they think, I've discovered a gene that regulates appetite. And they're studying the wrong thing. They're giving the wrong advice. And the end result is kind of tragic and that you have all these people who end up blaming themselves for their obesity. And yet part of the problem or much of the problem is they've gotten the wrong advice their
1: whole life. You examine obesity as a hormonal, metabolic, and psychological problem. Why are hormones one of the major keys to understanding obesity?
0: Well, our fat accumulation is regulated by hormones. So if you think about it, Somebody who suffers from obesity has a lot of fat, fat cells. So they're called adipocytes, adipose tissue, right? So adipocytes, they suck up too much fat and then they proliferate and you get too many fat cells that have too much fat in them. And all of that process is regulated hormonally. So your body sends these signals around called hormones, and the hormones tell your fat cells either to take up fat from the bloodstream and hold on to it, or maybe to release the fat that they've been holding on and let it back into the bloodstream, where it could then be used for fuel. But that's hormonal regulation. The central nervous system also plays a role, but the link to diet goes purely through hormones. And the hormone that dominates is this hormone insulin that Again, because insulin is dysfunctional in diabetes, the medical community has always thought of insulin. If you ask somebody define insulin, it's the hormone secreted by the pancreas that regulates blood sugar. But what it also does is tell your fat tissue to store calories as fat and to continue storing calories as fat as long as insulin is elevated. And so insulin dominates this process. And again, it, beginning in the nineteen sixties some very, very good researchers said, look, when you raise insulin, insulin's the most, well, the technical term is lipogenic, fat-creating hormone, and maybe increased insulin or maybe fat tissue that's too sensitive to insulin. You can think of a whole host of insulin-related reasons why fat tissue would accumulate excess fat, and we secrete insulin in response to the carbohydrate content of our diet primarily. So you had this physiology saying carbohydrates stimulate insulin, which causes fat accumulation. And you had a conventional wisdom until the 1960s that carbohydrates, sugars, starches, beer were fattening. And again, all of it sort of got swept under the rug because we know why people get fat, they eat too much.
1: Obese people lack metabolic flexibility. What exactly is that? Metabolic
0: flexibility is the ability to shift between burning the carbohydrates you're consuming in your diet to burning the fat that you're either consuming or the fat that you've stored. So what happens when you eat a mixed meal, right, is your body tries to burn the carbohydrates first because elevated blood sugar is toxic. You know, at any one time, we only have about a teaspoon worth of carbohydrate, of glucose, it's called, in our bloodstream. So a single teaspoon, and if that gets up to about a teaspoon and a half, you're considered diabetic. So now you eat a plate of pasta, which might have 50 teaspoons worth of carbs in it, of glucose, and that glucose gets digested, so it starts going into the circulation, and your body secretes this hormone insulin to bring it under control. So insulin tells your lean tissue and your organs, look, we got a lot of glucose coming in. Let's get rid of it. Burn it for fuel. So you immediately burn the glucose. The insulin tells your fat tissue to suck up and store any fat that you've also eaten and to hold on to the fat you stored while they take care of the glucose. So what's supposed to happen is the insulin goes up, you burn the carbs, and then as the insulin starts to come back down, your body is flexible enough to burn the fat that it's been storing while we're getting rid of the carbs, that's fuel flexibility, but if our metabolic flexibility shift back and forth easily from both, from carbs to fat, to fat to carbs, and you're always burning the fat that you've stored so you don't accumulate excess fat. If you develop this condition called insulin resistance, where your body becomes resistant to the action of insulin, your pancreas will respond by secreting more insulin And now you have elevated levels of insulin in your blood all the time, and now your body doesn't want to switch from burning carbs to fat. So when that happens, you lose this flexibility. You become basically a carbohydrate-burning organism, and the fat you eat just keeps getting stored away, and you get fatter and
1: fatter. What are ketones, and why are they the essence of the low-carb, high-fat lifestyle?
0: (laughs) One of the things that amazed me as a journalist doing this research is a number of misconceptions that are treated as dogma by the medical nutrition community. So one of these misconceptions is the idea that our brains require carbohydrates for fuel. Our brains will burn, you're told, like 130 grams of carbs a day. So if you eat a carbohydrate deficient diet, you're not going to fuel your brain. I don't know what the nutritionists expect will happen when you avoid carbs, but... This is the story you get. So one reason to eat carbs is because your brain burns them for fuel. If you're not eating carbs, or you stop eating, so say you go for a day, you're wandering around in the wilderness. You know, it's 200 years ago, you're hunting elk or something. You don't have time to eat, so you go a day without food. But at the end of 12 hours, your liver takes the fat that you're now mobilizing from your fat cells because your insulin levels are very low, and it turns that fat into molecules called ketones. And your brain starts burning the ketones for fuel and your brain works really well on ketones and it'll very happily, 75% of the energy it needs can come from ketones and it can get the rest from the glycerol molecule that's broken up when you're metabolizing fat or from protein. So ketones are a fuel that's naturally produced to fuel your brain if you're not eating a carbohydrate-rich diet or you're not eating at all. And in a ketogenic diet, you're basically abstaining from sugar, starches, and grains. So you're eating protein and fat, and whatever carbs you're eating are coming from green leafy vegetables. And that'll keep insulin levels so low that you'll mobilize fat, your liver will turn them into ketones. Your ketone level will go up. You'll go into a state called ketosis, where you've got measurable ketones in your circulation. Your brain will be burning ketones for fuel. So it's a perfectly natural nutritional state. And the argument that I and others have been making and that researchers are now really studying more than ever before is that it may be the healthiest nutritional state. There's a website called clinicaltrials.gov where you could plug in keto or ketogenic or ketosis and you'll see that there's almost a couple hundred studies that have either been completed or are going on now that are looking at Ketogenic diets for virtually any disease state you could imagine because both brains and bodies seem to work extraordinarily well when we don't eat carbohydrates and instead, you know, our brains are fueled on ketones.
1: Speaking of research, Gary, your nonprofit, the Nutrition Science Initiative, conducted a study on teens with fatty liver disease linked to sugar consumption. The findings ended up in JAMA just a couple years ago. What did that research discover?
0: Well, this was a pilot experiment, and we just wanted to know. So fatty liver disease has always been linked to alcohol consumption, used to be 20 years ago, if somebody showed up at the doctor's office and they were diagnosed with fatty liver and they said they weren't an alcoholic, the doctor would assume they were lying. And then it started showing up in children more and more and more. Now we have an epidemic of fatty liver disease. And it's associated with obesity and with type 2 diabetes. And there's an argument that this condition I mentioned called insulin resistance is actually caused by fat accumulation in the liver. Now, one of the things I discussed in my last book, which was a case against sugar, is that sugar is a molecule that's two carbohydrates bonded together. Glucose, which we've been talking about, which is the stuff of blood sugar and pasta and potatoes and bread, and fructose, which is what makes it sweet. The glucose goes into the circulation and raises blood sugar. The fructose goes through the small intestine is metabolized there and what comes out of the small intestine is metabolized in the liver and our livers aren't designed basically to deal with the amount of fructose they see in our sugar rich environment from our breakfast cereals and fruity yogurts through our coca-colas and sugar in our coffee through whatever we have for dessert for lunch and the sodas and the sweet coffee we drink then and on and on so the liver converts the fructose into fat, and often that fat seems to accumulate in the liver. So it's quite likely sugar consumption and sugary beverages particularly are the cause of fatty liver disease that's what's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So my not-for-profit funded a pilot study at the University of California, San Diego and at Emory University in Atlanta where they took kids with diagnosed non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and they fed them for eight weeks diets that had no added sugars at all. So there was still some sugar in the fruits and the green vegetables, low levels, but they got everything else was sugar-free. And the fatty liver disease in these kids for the most part resolved over the course of eight weeks and Hopefully people will follow up on this study. The reason you fund what's called a pilot study is to get the research community interested. But the idea that if sugary beverages cause non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, they're probably a significant cause of type 2 diabetes as well. And we're hoping more people will follow up by studying the effects of sugar alone on these disorders.
1: The key to good research is replication, and you've uh, laid a nice groundwork there with that one. A couple answers ago, you did briefly mention protein, and I'm glad you did, because obviously keto's focus is on carbs and fats, but the third major nutritional component in food is protein. Considering that it can be converted to glucose in the liver, especially in the absence of carbs, do people partaking in keto need to be mindful of protein intake as well? That's a
0: question of individual variation. So some people probably will, some people don't. The issue with protein, one of the issues is about 60% of the amino acids and proteins will be converted in the liver into glucose, and then they'll stimulate insulin secretion. So if your goal is to minimize insulin secretion, And there's a phrase I use in the book that the Nobel laureate in 1965, well, she hadn't won the Nobel Prize yet, but she would go on to win. it uses phrase, the negative stimulus of insulin deficiency. So for fat to get out of your fat tissue, which is what you want to do, if you can have it do if you're overweight or obese, you have to fat tissue has to see the negative stimulus of insulin deficiency. Basically, it has to look around and say, hey, there's no insulin, we can let the fat out. And then your lean tissue will take it up and burn it. So if your body is secreting insulin in response to the amino acids and the protein or the conversion of those amino acids into glucose, for some people, that can be a problem. So traditionally, these very low-carb ketogenic diets, i call the reason I call low-carb high-fat is you don't replace the carbohydrates with protein, so you don't want to be eating lean, skinless chicken breasts. You replace the carbs with fat. That's one of the reasons why this has always been so controversial, because we're telling people to eat the exact same fats that they've been told will give them heart disease, and they both can't be right, so... One of the things I'm trying to do in this book is get people to realize and doctors to realize that they could see such enormous improvements in the health of their patients on these high-fat, high-saturated-fat diets that maybe they should suspend their belief in the idea that the saturated fat is going to give people heart disease. But in the course of doing this, as you point out, for some people, they're going to have to avoid eating too much protein and certainly avoid lean protein. These diets should be high fat, and it's why people like me you know I 'll joke that you know in my world, bacon and butter are are, are health foods, and I hope the hell that's right
1: <laughs> and speaking of, is it true that animal fats are preferred over other forms of fat when eating keto and if so, why
0: Well on one hand it's just much easier to do these diets to eat this way if you're willing to eat animal fats you know you barbecue a chicken or barbecue a steak and saute some greens and there's your meal and you're perfectly happy. You don't have to worry about vitamin deficiencies or not getting the right minerals or are you getting the essential fatty acids you need? You know you will. There's a saying, uh, one of the pioneers in this work is a physician at Duke University named Eric Westman and there's this phrase, you are what you eat, and Eric would like to say, you know, eat what you are. (laughs) So humans are made of protein and fat with this tiny bit of carbohydrates stored away as glycogen. And so if you eat protein and fat, which you can get in the right proportions in animal products, you're good. You're basically giving your body what it is and it will knows how to take those foods and, and put them to good use. You start trying to do it with vegetable oils. I have a lot of allies in this world who think that seed oils are as dangerous to human health as sugar and what I do sugar and white flour. I don't know if they're right. I don't find that evidence is compelling. Hmm. But if you want to eat a high fat diet to minimize your insulin, it's pretty easy to do with animal source foods. It's harder to do with mostly plants. You got to get your fat from well, avocados and olives and then oils and seed oils, and those are pretty new to human consumption, they make me nervous. So I do have friends who eat ketogenic vegan diets and vegetarian diets and do very well for themselves, but it takes a lot of thought, you know, a lot of things like flax seeds and stuff to try and get enough fat and the right fats, whereas if you're willing to eat animals, it's easy to do.
1: Eating this much fat will have an effect on LDL cholesterol, increasing LDL cholesterol. How concerning is keto's effect on LDL?
0: Well, the medical community, regrettably, has decided over the years that LDL is about the only measurement that matters to them. So this is sort of the grand cosmic joke with all this. You've got this way of eating that will return you to health, right? So if your blood pressure is high, your blood pressure will correct and get lower. Your blood sugar, if that's out of control, that'll come into control. If your weight is out of control, that'll come into control. All your other blood lipids, your good HDL will go up and your triglycerides will go down. And even the form that the LDL particle comes in your bloodstream will change. So The idea that LDL cholesterol is the good marker for heart disease is about 50 years old, and it was pretty much disproven by the 1970s. But then the pharmaceutical industry came along with these drugs called statins to lower blood sugar, uh, excuse me, to lower cholesterol. And statins are, you know, they work, they do reduce heart disease risk, and some people are at high risk of heart disease or have already had heart attacks. Anyway, so the medical community's focus is on LDL. And to them, if a diet raises LDL, you should not eat it, no matter what other improvements you have in your health. So you could lose 100 pounds, you can get rid of all your diabetes drugs, and if your doctor sees your LDL's gone up, he'll tell you to go back to eating the way you used to eat and gain 100 pounds back and start using the diabetes drugs. It's a little insane. The other issue is, circa 2020, the best marker of heart disease risk for LDL is not the cholesterol in the LDL, but the LDL particle. And for most people, particle number, and for most people who do this, their particle numbers will improve. For some of us, it gets worse. And now you have to make a decision. If I have, and I discussed these studies done by a California startup called Verda Health with people with type 2 diabetes where they had 26 markers of heart disease risk and 22 of them improved on this nutritional keto diet, three of them stayed the same and LDL cholesterol got worse. So is that person, has he or she increased their risk of heart disease or decreased their risk despite the LDL? And to me, and the VERTA Health people, it's very clear that these people are healthier, that their heart disease risk has virtually gone away. But if you're worried about the LDL, then you could do the diet and control the LDL with some kind of benign statin, something like, again, I'm not a doctor, I can't prescribe. I don't worry about it. My LDL went up over the last five years as I ate this diet. But everything else about me is in good health, and I have no issue of family history of heart disease. And I discuss this sort of my thinking is, you know, in my position, I have doctor friends who would say, well, take a statin to be on the safe side. And I don't. I don't want to take a drug for life that I can't see a visible change in symptoms when I take it. I have other friends I respect who in similar situations or who do have a family history of heart disease and have opted to take statins for their high LDL cholesterol. But when you look at the big picture, again, multiple, multiple, all the various risk factors for heart disease, effectively, all of them get better when you eat this way. The only one that doesn't is LDL, or doesn't consistently is LDL.
1: Well, Gary, we could continue this conversation for another 30 minutes. But alas, we are at the end of our allotted time. Any final thoughts, as I bid you adieu, on the case for keto?
0: No, other than I think it's a valuable book, or I wouldn't have written it. Clearly, every author says that. But for anyone out there who's struggling with their weight and has struggled with their weight, the reason I wrote this book is to consider eating this way. And if you do consider and you want to try it, to do it right, to think about it correctly, to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And then I wrote it for physicians because if you're in family medicine or internal medicine in this day and age, your waiting room is filling up with people who have the complications from obesity and diabetes and hypertension and this condition called metabolic syndrome. And you could continue prescribing drugs and managing their disease, or you could learn about this low-carb, high-fat ketogenic eating and maybe make your patients healthy. And in my understanding is, Doctors go into medicine because they want to make people healthy, not manage disease.
1: Gary Taubes is an award-winning science and health journalist, co-founder of the Nutrition Science Initiative, and the best-selling author of The Case Against Sugar, Why We Get Fat, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and his newest book, The Case for Keto, Rethinking Weight Control, and the Science and Practice of Low-Carb, High-Fat Eating. Gary, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this book.
0: Okay. Thank you, Trey. I really appreciate your interest in it. And it's always great when someone's got smart questions to ask as well. Did their homework in effect. So thank you.
1: It's my pleasure, Gary. Take care. We'll be talking when you put out that diabetes book. (laughs) Okay. Take care. And thanks to you for listening. A reminder that you can follow us on social media at Books on Pod. And check out BooksOnPod.com or search Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts to hear each and every episode. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.